Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Silence your cell phones. Welcome back to our verse-by-verse study in the book of 1 Kings. Let's jump right in where we left last week at verse 13. The Bible says, Now King Solomon sent word and had Hiram brought from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, an artesian in bronze. And he was filled with wisdom, skill, and knowledge for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. He fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of each pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to put on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of lattice work and wreaths of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven for the one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows around on the one lattice to cover the capitals, which were on top of the pomegranates. And so he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on the tops of the pillars in the porch were of lily design for cubits. So there were capitals on the two pillars, also above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the lattice. And the pomegranates totaled 200 in rows around both capitals. And he set up the pillars at the porch of the main room. He set up the right pillar and named it Jachin, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. On top of the pillars was the lily design, and so the work of the pillars was finished. We are first told that Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. The people of Tyre were famous for their skill in working with metal. And the most famous of all of them was a man named Hiram. Now this was not King Hiram, who we learned about in chapter 5, but another man by the same name. This was a different man from Tyre. He was a spare Tyre. (laughs) All kidding aside, the shared name is fortuitous because both men contributed significantly to the same great project And so they shared much more than just a name. Hiram is what we would call today a master craftsman. It says that he was filled with wisdom and skill. In the scripture, God gives wisdom and skill for people to do not just spiritual things, but also physical things as well. Sometimes people think, I hate public speaking or being in the spotlight in any way. So there's no way that God could ever use me. I mean, I'm only good with my hands. Listen, you don't want me working on your car or fixing you dinner. Unless it's grilling hamburgers. I can make a mean hamburger. But God can use you to do things that are very important to his kingdom and just as needful without ever being up front or in the spotlight in any way. Take a look at the two bronze pillars Hiram made to stand in front of the temple. They are about 27 feet high, 18 feet in circumference, and about 3 inches thick and hollow. The capitals atop the pillars added another 7 feet to their height. Thus, the pillars stood about 34 and a half feet tall. 
And since the pillars are likely freestanding and not weight-bearing, they were probably just being symbolic. But as you came into the temple, you would see these two huge brass pillars named stability and strength. Jacob means he will establish. Boaz means in it is strength. Jacob speaks of stability. Boaz speaks of strength. I like that. Yet on top of the lily work, there was this beautiful, ornate carvings that cannot be seen by anyone except from someone looking down from above. Now this intrigues me because the beauty wasn't seen by the average person. It wasn't seen by those who went in and out of the temple. But God, from his heavenly perspective, looked down upon these pillars of strength and stability, and there was something beautiful for him to behold. Now, why would I bring that out? As the temple of God, we too have some pillars in our midst this morning. Some men of strength, some women of stability, people like those on the worship team, the prayer warriors, the burden bearers, the Sunday school teachers, people who do the cleaning and the maintenance, and those who give sacrificially. Now it is true that some people receive their honor right now, but others are pillars who may never be noticed by men, but whose lives are filled with lily work and beautiful to the Father, and will one day be rewarded by Him. Verse 20 tells us that there were also rows of pomegranates around the capitals. Now these fruits were symbols of the promised land and also of productivity. For inside a pomegranate, it's packed with large seeds. And it says the capitals were decorated with rows of fruit and chains of flowers, which I think once again are echoes from Eden to remind us that this temple was to be the gateway to paradise symbolically. But I want us to look at the pillars a little bit more closely. What about the pillars themselves? What was their symbolic meaning for Solomon and their spiritual connection to Jesus Christ and the life of the Christian faith today? They were given names, verse 21 says. He set up a pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up a pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. It's likely that these names were inscribed upon the pillars. Now, to someone who knew Hebrew, these names were powerful. As I've said, Jacob means he will establish, and Boaz means in him is strength. Here then is we, he will establish, and in him is strength, serving as sort of sentinels in front of the temple. The first highlights the promise of God, while the second highlights the power of God. The first recalls what God has said, and the second suggests what God can do. Or we could say that Jacob emphasizes the foundation on which the king and the people are to rely, while Boaz signifies the resources upon which they must draw. Let's consider what Jacob and Boaz can teach us this morning. Jacob, or he will establish, was a powerful reminder of the Lord's promise to King David. The promise that has been behind what all of it has happened so far in 1 Kings. And establish is a key word of that promise. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read this. 
I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, look back at the story that we've been following from 1 Kings chapter 2. Here are some verses from there. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now therefore, as the Lord lives who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. So we see that the pillar that was placed on the south side of the entry to the house of the Lord, bearing the name he will establish, was a powerful testimony to the Lord's promise concerning the kingdom of his chosen son, David. To say Jacob is really just another way of saying, thy kingdom come. It is to say that he will establish and mean that God will establish his royal throne. We turn now to Boaz. Boaz was also the name of David's great-grandfather from the book of Ruth. This is a further reminder of the entrance of the house of the Lord being about the house of David also. Now we can take this idea a step further by comparing 1 Kings 7 with one of the royal psalms that David wrote. Psalm 21 ends and begins with the word Boaz. The key word in both the first and last verse of that psalm is the same word used for strength that Solomon used to build his pillar. So it's at least intended to remind people of this psalm. Something similar happens today when someone says, We the people, which is a single phrase calls it to mind a longer statement, in this case the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. So if we want to understand the full meaning of the pillar of Boaz, therefore we need to understand David's psalm when he says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. Let me ask you this morning, what is the pillar of your life? The pillars of Solomon's temple were Jachin and Boaz, the strength of God himself and the stability of the king who sat upon that throne. Our pillar is, or ought to be, Jesus Christ, the greater than Solomon and now the royal son of David, who now rules as the king of God's kingdom. By faith in Christ, the believer's life has become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and a dwelling place for the living God. The pillar of that inner temple is Jesus Christ. He is our pillar when everything else in life seems to give way. He is our pillar of strength when we feel weak. He is our pillar of mercy when we need forgiveness. He is our pillar of comfort when we suffer loss and grief. And he's our pillar of hope. And we feel as though we have missed our chance in life. And do not have much to look forward to. When Jesus Christ is the pillar of our souls, then whatever trouble may come into our lives, we are able to say, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
By God's strength, we will persevere through all the troubles of this life until that day when Jesus fulfills this promise for us in glory as is recorded in Revelation 3.12 when he says, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, these two pillars standing before the house of the Lord speak of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The Lord will establish his kingdom by his strength and therefore he will be able to reign forever and ever. The New Testament announces that God's purpose is to establish the kingdom of David's son, which is what that pillar proclaimed means, that in the fullness of time, all things will be united under Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7 gives us this glorious truth. It says, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Verse 23, please. He also made the sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in shape, and its height was five cubits, and it was thirty cubits in circumference. Under its brim, gourds were went around encircling it ten to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. The gourds were in two rows cast with the rest. It was standing on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. And it was a hand width thick, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It could hold two thousand baths. He made the sea is a striking expression. This is what we are told when we are told that the Lord himself made the sea. Now, of course, the sea that Hiram made is a pale reflection of the sea that the Lord made. It says the containers that held this sea was made of cast metal. Nonetheless, this is very impressive. A diameter of about 15 feet, a circumference of about 45 feet, and a height of about seven or eight feet, that is a substantial piece of bronze work. We know from Exodus 30:18 that in the tabernacle there had been a relatively small bronze basin for washing. In contrast, this sea appears to have been a huge bowl filled with some 12,000 gallons of water. The provision in the house of the Lord for cleansing far exceeded what had been in the tabernacle. This huge structure, which must have been seriously heavy, was supported in a very unusual way. Verse 12 says, It stood upon twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set upon them, and all their rear parts were then pointed inward. Now the number 12 may suggest the 12 tribes of Israel and therefore represent the nation that was being symbolically cleansed here. The oxen are also powerful representatives of the living creation as well as prominent representative, representatives of the sacrificial offerings that were to take place there. 
spacing out in the four points of the compass, they were pointing to the whole world. Look at verse 27. Then he made the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits, its width four cubits, and its height was three cubits. This was the design of the stands. They had borders, that is, borders between the crossbars. And on the borders, which were between the crossbars, were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the crossbars, there was a pedestal above, and beneath the lions and oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Now, each strand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports beneath the basin, were cast supports with wreaths on each side. And its opening inside the crown at the top was a cubit, and its opening was round like the design of a pedestal, a cubit and a half. And on its opening also there were engravings, and their borders were square, not round. The four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand, and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. Now there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were part of the stand itself. And on the top of the stand there was a circular form, half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand it says... Its stays and its borders were part of it. And he engraved on the plates of its stays and on its borders cherubim, lines, and palm trees, as there were clear space on each with wreaths all around. He made the ten stands like this. All of them had the same casting, same measure, and same form. It seems reasonable to say that the house of the Lord was surrounded by mobile provisions for cleansing. Much later, the prophet Ezekiel will see a vision of a new temple. He will see water flowing out from this point into the temple complex, out into the whole world. Ezekiel 47 says, The water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, and enters the sea when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very, very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes, and fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engelum, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of many kinds, like the fish on the great sea. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. The fulfillment of all of that has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is now the new temple. He announced the fulfillment of all of these things when he stood in the temple of his day and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Verse 38, please. And he made ten basins of bronze, each holding forty baths. Each basin was four cubits, and on each of the ten stands was one basin. Then he placed the stands, five on the right side of the house, and five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house eastward toward the south. Now Hiram made the basins and the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. The two pillars and the two bowls of the capitals which were on the top of the two pillars. 
and the two lattices to cover the two bowls of the capitals which were on the top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates from the two lattices, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice to cover the two bowls of the capitals where it's on the top of the pillars. And the ten stands with the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea, and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the buckets, the shovels, and the bowls. Indeed, all these utensils which Hiram made for King Solomon and the house of the Lord were a polished bronze. The king had them cast in the plain of the Jordan, the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zarethan. However, Solomon left all the utensils unweighed, because there were so many, the weight of the bronze cannot be determined." The sea often appears in biblical poetry about God's work of creation and also his work of redemption. God calms the seas and overcomes its waves and its billows. He delivers his people from its threatening power. This happened in an unforgettable way during the time of the Exodus and became a favorite image of God's power over all that had threatened his ordered and good creation. And so that calm sea that stood in that courtyard was therefore a picture of God's reign over all the threatening powers this earth can throw at us. Much later in the Bible, there will be another picture of God's throne with a sea of glass like crystal before it. That is an astounding picture of the established rule of God and of his king where there is no longer anything but peace and never another threat. Now the huge quantity of water in all these basins show that God has a pervasive concern for personal holiness. At the temple during that time, cleanliness really was next to godliness because in order to perform their sacred duties, Solomon's priests had to keep themselves ceremonially pure through ritual cleansing. And the practical question of how this water and this huge container could have been accessed for cleaning really need not bother us. Perhaps there were taps fitted. The point is the huge provision for the cleansing. Once again, many years later, Zechariah would speak of a day when there will still be even a greater provision. He says, on that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from all sin and uncleanliness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one today, as Lisa was saying, who cleanses us by his blood that was shed for us. Hebrews 10.9 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a full heart and assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In scripture, water for drinking is a picture of the Spirit of God, while water for washing is a picture of the Word of God. So as the priests labored for the Lord in the temple, they would become defiled and had to be cleansed. And you know what? Also, as we serve the Lord today in our temples, 
Sometimes they also need to be cleansed because we too can become defiled. When we serve the Lord, we too can need the washing of the water by the word. Jesus pictured this truth beautifully in John 13 when he washed his disciples' feet. Peter thought he needed a complete bath, but Jesus said, No, only your feet needs washing. Why? Because as we walk through this world, our feet are going to get dirty. And so God's priests still need cleansing today, except there is now two major differences. The first difference is that now all of God's people are priests. In the days of Solomon, only the Levites performed a priestly ministry, but today God has a whole kingdom of priests. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been called into the holy service of God Almighty. God is building us into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now that atonement has been made for our sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, there is no further need for anyone to ever offer another animal sacrifice. But we do need to sacrifice our praise to him with a life given to him in his service. Our priestly duty is to proclaim the gospel to the world and to pray for people who need God's saving grace. In order to offer God's service this morning that is truly holy, we must be clean. Which brings us to the second major difference between Solomon's temple and the church of Christ. The cleansing at that temple was only skin deep as it only washed the outside of the priest's body. But now we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that is the place where God's Spirit dwells, and so the cleansing actually takes place within us. And so the various washings that went on at Solomon's temple could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The pots and shovels mentioned in verses 40 and 45, as well as the dishes and tongs mentioned in verse 49, were patterned after similar utensils that Moses had made for the tabernacle in the wilderness. They were used in connection with the, of the offering of various sacrifices for shoveling ashes and spreading incense and carrying hot coals and sprinkling sacrificial blood as the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. Now, we do not know a great deal about this altar or the practice of burning incense that took place there. However, it played a role in the events surrounding the birth of Christ. The old priest Zechariah entered into the temple to burn incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing right on the right side of the altar of incense, and the angel announced to him the birth of a child, which would become John the Baptist. Furthermore, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is described as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Also in the scripture, the burning of incense is symbolized by our prayers that rise up to the Lord. The sacred vessels in Solomon's temple were part of the Old Testament system of sacrifice. Now we too, once again, are also called to a life of sacrifice. Not of our animals or our grain, but of our very lives. Jesus Christ offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
So now in joyful response, we should offer everything we have back to God. Somewhere in the sacred interior of our souls, we should tell Jesus that we are available to his service totally. And whatever ways our lives can be used for his glory, whether that's giving, praying, singing, teaching, organizing, discipling, or simply just showing up on Sunday morning to encourage your brothers and sisters. By the mercy of God, Romans 12:1 says, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of service. And finally, as we finish up today, verse 47 tells us there was so much bronze that it cannot even be counted. We've learned that the cost of this temple is really incalculable. It isn't enough to just know the price of the precious metals today, but we also need to know what its purchasing power was. Then we must calculate what Solomon paid for manpower and materials and try somehow to express it in contemporary equivalents. And when you consider there was gold overlaid on the inside walls and floors and furniture, the doors and the cherubim, you have no hesitation concluding this was a very, very costly building. And yet, all of this beauty is going to be destroyed. And all of this wealth is going to be confiscated. When the Babylonian army captured Jerusalem, and destroys the temple. Nebuchadnezzar robbed the temple and deported the captives in stages, and eventually his men are going to burn the city and the temple so they get their hands on all the gold that was there. How painful and sobering it is to realize to me this morning that Solomon, the man who constructed this temple, the man whom of it is said the Lord loved him was also the man who is going to marry a multitude of foreign wives and he's also going to encourage idolatry in Israel. The very sin that's going to turn the nation away from God and bring upon them the fiery judgment of God. And so while our souls are eternally safe this morning, in much the same way, our works, though, can be burned up if they aren't done in the right spirit and the right motivation. Let's make sure that we all avoid that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go to a temple, but we are now the temple. And it's something that I'm sure that none of us truly appreciates or understand, that the Holy Spirit of the living God actually lives inside of us. That the things we do, he does. The things we think, he knows. I pray, Father, that also we would remember that he is there as our comforter. He is there to discipline us when we needed to, needed to be disciplined and encouraged when we need to be encouraged. He is all those things to us and more. So we say, fill us afresh once again with your Holy Spirit. Let it drive our lives closer to the cross and let us make a difference in this dark and depraved world. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This means